We are going to be reading from the book of Acts this morning. Acts comes shortly after the Gospels in the New Testament. And if you're new to reading the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to be reading three selections from Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. We'll begin in Acts chapter 1, our first passage, verses 1 through 11. So if you'll follow along with me on the screen or on a Bible in front of you or on your phone as we read God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Our second passage for today is Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 21. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, in signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And our third passage for today is Acts chapter 2 verses 38 through 41. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, If you have your Bible with you and you're not already there after the reading, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1, if you would, please. Acts chapter 1. This morning we begin a new series. We are going to explore the first third of the book of Acts. And the theme for our series is, as you see on the screen, Spirit Empowered, a study in Acts. So why don't I pray, and then we will get right down to work together this morning. Father, thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for giving us another day, breath in our lungs, 
uh, blood coursing through our veins. Thank you for giving us your word. We pray that you would use your word to reorient our hearts on you. Father, I pray that we would see Jesus clearly, that he would be the hero. Uh, He is the hero of our family, but that we would see him in that way. And Father, help us to get to a place this morning where we again agree as a family that we are completely dependent upon the work of your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to see, hear, and experience our Father's voice this morning. Help us to wait on you. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So let me ask you a question. I, didn't bring, I meant to bring my phone up here. Have you ever had to factory reset your iPhone or any, any phone? I know you're using an iPhone, but any other second-class phone by chance? <laughs> Have you ever done a factory reset? It feels good, doesn't it? Like clean, not if you've lost everything, but I find it very, I enjoy the factory reset process. Clean slate, you're starting over fresh. It feels good. Uh, my MacBook has been screaming at me for a couple weeks now that my disk capacity or my disk space is full. It's just begging me to back it up, shut it down, and start all over again. How about this? Have you ever felt that way in your soul? Like you wish you had a factory reset button? What about in your experience of Christianity? Do you ever feel like you wish you just, you could just press a, press a button and reset and start with a clean slate? I have, and I, I do. Um, I think sometimes in our experience of Christianity, we get so busy or we have this sense of, I need to be doing, doing, doing. So for example, I need to have devotions. I need to have quiet time. I need to be involved in Bible study, we call it. I need resolutions. I just listened to a podcast, a preacher was talking about his rules of life. Like if you don't have rules of life, you're not a real Christian. You need discipline. You're a Christian, so you need to be nice, whatever that means. Um, Guilt and shame become motivators. And your life is consumed with these lists of, I need to do this, I need to do these things, and I need to refrain from doing these things. So there's so much emphasis on doing, it's wearying, it's exhausting. And there's not enough emphasis on just being and you wanna hit the factory reset button. Well, the book of Acts, where our series will take place, Acts is the factory reset button for your soul. And the focus in the first third of Acts is entirely on the Holy Spirit, his presence and his power. And what we're gonna see this morning is what you need more than you need anything else is You need to wait on the Spirit. You don't need to add something else to your list. You need to rest and wait on the presence and the power of the Spirit. And here's the big idea of of our sermon this morning. Spirit-empowered people wait before they work. That's it. Spirit-empowered people wait before they work. So let me just ask you a question. I assume many of you are professing Christians. Uh, Let me ask, do you feel that you are spirit-empowered? Do you feel that the spirit is present with you and empowering your, not epic things, don't think that's, that's a fault in our Christianity, don't think big things, think empowering your moment by moment mundane experiences in life. Is he present and is he empowering you? Let me ask you this, do you wait for the Spirit? Are you, are you waiting for the Spirit? Do you wait for the Spirit before you work? Or are you like me and you just go to work? Just do something else, just do the next thing. Have you ever waited? I mean, initially, have you ever gone before God and said, I'm done, I'm, I'm waiting until you do something, I'm not doing anything else. So as starting point, has it ever been your practice where you have the practice of waiting? Do you practice waiting? So just a brief introduction of Acts. I don't really need to give it to you. It's in the first couple of verses, right? It says, in the first book. So we know there's another book. Acts is a second book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day when he was taken up, his ascension, right, after his resurrection. He was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what do we learn in that introduction? Uh, It doesn't say it there, but we know from other places that a guy named Luke is the author of this book. He's the same guy who wrote the gospel according to Luke. They're both, both his. So Acts is a sequel. It's part two in a three-part story. Now, how many chapters are in the book of Acts? 28. What's the name of the family that we belong to? Family of 29. Why? Acts 29. What's going on with that? So the, the, the story behind our name is that Uh, It's to capture the idea that the story that we see unfold in the 28 chapters of Acts doesn't end at the end of the 28th chapter. It's an ongoing story. So it is really a three-part story. Luke would be part one, the gospel according to Luke. Acts would be part two, Acts 1 to 28. And we are living in the third part of the story beyond Acts chapter 28. So hence our uh, family of church's name, Acts 29. Uh, So if you're like Star Wars, or if you're all into like order of stories, uh, the gospel according to Luke would be Star Wars episodes one to three, good job, wherever that came from, one to three, Acts would be four to six, and we're living seven to too many, however many there are now, right? That's what we're living. Does the order matter? Maybe. Maybe. You can read Acts first. You can watch episodes four to six first. Doesn't matter. You can go back and read Luke, the gospel according to Luke first. Um, The story weaves together, but we are living in the third piece of this story. Uh, Luke was a really good friend and a traveling companion of Paul, and um, Paul features prominently in Acts, but you need to know that. They were very, very good friends. In fact, here's just a, a quote from Paul real quick from his letter to Timothy. He said this. He said, Luke alone is with me. And he wrote that while he was under arrest. He had been abandoned. Uh, Other people had to leave him for various reasons. But Luke was the kind of, he was loyal. Luke was a loyal, loyal friend. That's who wrote this book. What else do we learn in the introduction? Uh, Who's it addressed to? What's the guy's name? Theophilus. That's a Greek name. So Theophilus is just, he's just an average Greek dude, right? He's an outsider to the Bible narrative. He doesn't belong in God's family. He's, he's way outside. So listen, if you're here this morning and you consider yourself to be an outsider, you're on the fringes, you're a skeptic of Christianity, you're unsure, there is a book of the Bible addressed to you specifically. God is interested in desiring for you to be a part of his family. Acts is written to those who would consider themselves to be outside the family. So if you're here this morning and view yourself as that outsider, man, this is super encouraging. This book's for you. It's for you. Another thing that we see in the introduction is that Jesus' resurrection changes everything. Look at what he says. It says, Jesus presented himself alive to them. So last week was Easter, right? Uh, How many of you did Easter bunny chocolates and all the eggs and stuff like that? All the stuff that has nothing to do with Easter. You did it all good. So this Sunday is the Amnesty Sunday. You can bring it all down front, and I'll put it all in my office so I can have it for the next couple of weeks. We get so like kind of wrapped up in Easter being a holiday for kids, which is fine. Like enjoy all the fun things as a family. But guys, Easter is far more than a holiday. Easter is a holy day with a life-changing reality. Nothing remains the same after Jesus' resurrection. And so we see in this introduction that Jesus spent 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God, right? So after his resurrection, He spent all of his time talking about the kingdom that he was building, this kingdom of life and this kingdom of light. The resurrection, though, was the sign of his kingdom. Like Jesus could talk all he wanted before his death, but if he did not raise back to life, his words would be meaningless. So it's the resurrection that gives weight to or value to his word. So he's spending 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God, but his resurrection was the very sign of the kingdom, that it was for real. And so when Jesus presents himself alive to people, to you, everything changes. 
It's kind of a shame that, that Easter is just one Sunday because to be honest, in the culture of Christianity, every Sunday is Easter for us. Like the, the resurrection is central to us. If the resurrection didn't happen, we're wasting our time. It is the centerpiece of our faith 2,000 years later because when Jesus presents himself alive to us, everything changes. Life has defeated death. It signals to us that redemption is possible. It's hope for our future and healing for our past. So a new character is going to take center stage in part two of Luke's ongoing saga. The gospel narratives featured who? Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus, rightfully so. The gospel narratives feature him prominently. Acts, on the other hand, especially in the first third, is going to put the Holy Spirit center stage. So now uh, the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is going to be featured prominently here. So really, if your Bible is open, you have the, you have the subtitle there. Can you see it? It's Acts is the big word, but what does it say in all the little words? The Acts of the Apostles. I don't like that name or that subtitle at all. Really, if we were to be honest with this, it would say the acts of the Spirit through the apostles. He is, the, he is center stage in this book. And what I want to show you is Jesus himself, his own work was empowered by the Spirit. Notice what Luke says. He says, after Jesus had given commands through whom? The Holy Spirit, everything that Jesus did or said was empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So it's like Luke is starting part two of this ongoing saga out with this, with this big idea saying, look guys, Jesus himself, like God himself, waited on the Spirit before he worked. Why don't you? Why do you just go to work? Why do you just do Jesus himself waited on the Spirit before he worked. Spirit-empowered people wait before they work. That's just what we do. Well, it's what we're supposed to do. It's what we're created to do. It's not what we do, is it? And so now Luke is saying, let me show you how what was true for Jesus is also true for his followers. We wait before we work. And that brings us to verses 4 to 8, which read... And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me that John, uh, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, hey, it's not for you to know times or seasons. Like, you're asking the wrong question. Like, don't, don't worry yourself about that. That's my lane. Let me help you get back into your lane. Uh, the father's fixed the time by his own authority. Here's your lane right here, verse eight. Here's your lane. You will receive power. So our lane is not even so much doing as being and receiving something. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and, and, and then after you've waited and after you've received, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So notice Jesus says, look, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. So Jesus orders his followers not to depart, but to, what was his one command? Wait, I want you to wait. So this command to wait is not, it, it, yeah, it's the starting point, but it's not only the starting point. It is meant to be an ongoing practice. So Jesus intends for us to begin our journey with him by waiting for him. So it's starting point, but it's the first command and enduring command to remind us that this is, this is the culture of Jesus' family. This is who we are, and this is what we do. Being matters more than doing, because all of your doing is going to flow out of your being. But you can't do if you haven't received power from the Spirit. We can't be and do the things that Jesus calls us to without the Spirit's presence. So it's the starting point of our story, but it's also the ongoing practice. And, and, and so we read this and we're like, all right, wait for what? It says the promise of the Father. What is the promise of the Father? Well, he says, hey, guys, listen, you know that John baptized with water only. Uh, we still baptize with water only, right? The water is a symbol. It's an external sign that says something true about us internally or spiritually. So we, we still baptize with water just like John did. But 
He says, the father baptizes his kids with the Holy Spirit. Like, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that the father baptizes his kids with the Holy Spirit? Well, we just read in verse 8, it gives us the answer to that question right here. He says, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So to be baptized by the Spirit is to, is to have this experience of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, coming upon you and taking up residence within you. So we could say it this way. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to receive God's presence and God's power through the Spirit. That's all that it means. And unfortunately, that's become a, an oft-debated term. What, what exactly does it mean? That, that's it right there. To be baptized by the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit is to receive God's presence and God's power through the Spirit. And then he says what? Then you go to work. Now we can talk about work. Then you will be my witnesses. And he lists these, these regions. So basically he's saying, you're going to be my witnesses in every city and every town and every dusty dirt road that I bring you all the way around the world, to include Kadena. That's why I gave you orders here. Like, and we know that, right? As followers of Jesus, that is, this is why you received orders here. This is the primary reason. Sure, there are lots of human reasons going on, but it's the Father who wanted you here. You're here because your dad wants you here as one of his witnesses, as somebody who points to Jesus. And so we see this pattern emerging. Wait, then work as starting point and ongoing practice. Wait, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Wait, and then work. So again, let me ask you, have I ever waited? And do I wait before I work, or do I just go to work? I think most of us just go to work. I go to work. Now, I, I want to spend just a moment here because we've got all this talk going on of, all right, we've got this Spirit or Holy Spirit, or maybe some of you come from a tradition that uses a term more like Holy Ghost, right? So we have this person, and then we have Jesus, who we understand to be God, and then we have God the Father. So if you're new to Christianity or kind of on the outside, what are we, what are we talking about? Are we talking about one God, three gods, what's going on exactly? And so let me just give you this term. Christians are what we would call Trinitarians, okay? Trinitarians, we believe in what's called the Trinity. Here's a little graphic of the Trinity, not complicated at all, um, but here it is, okay? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three members of the Trinity. Now notice the, it's, it's, it, there's an, a helpful line connecting each one. The Father's not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. There are three distinct. If you take the position that they're just one being that's called modalism, and it teaches that God can only show up as one of the three at any given time. So he's got to be the Son, and then he's got to run over here real quick and be the Father again, and then he's got to stop being the Father and go manifest himself as the Spirit. So it's called modalism, and that is uh, just not what the Bible teaches about the character of God. So the Father's not the Son, Son not the Holy Spirit. Each of them are God, co-equally and co-eternally, the Trinity. The, West the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains the Trinity this way, and you can leave that up for just a moment. It says, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And then, so look, there are debates around this. That's not new. There were debates all the way back in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century. And in the 5th century, there was a creed that was written. It's called the Athanasian Creed. And the purpose of this creed was to bring clarity to uh, our understanding of who God is in the Trinity. And so it seeks to capture everything that the Bible says about that. And so here's just, it's a long creed, and I'm not going to give it all to you this morning. You should read it this week. But here's a little bit of it right here. And let me read this for you. The Athanasian Creed says that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, so the Godness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory is equal and their majesty is co-eternal. Thus... The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. And so some of you are sitting there and you're like, all right, nice creed, John, cool history, I'm really only interested in what the Bible says, like, for me, it's no creed but Christ, any of you come from that tradition? That's okay, um, that's okay. 
Jesus is okay with that. Let me show you what Jesus himself says about this. Just from, uh, we could go any number of places, but just here's one place from the Gospel of John. John 14, verses 16 and 17 says this. Jesus says, I'm gonna ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of the truth. So even Jesus is either crazy or outside of his mind or lying to us. He's talking about, is he talking about having a conversation with himself? He's talking about having a conversation with his father, and he's going to ask the father to send another member of the Trinity to be with his family, right? So three in one. And um, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him because he's going to dwell with you and will be in you. And then a chapter later in the same, same long conversation that Jesus is hap- uh, having, John 15, 26, Jesus says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So what's the Spirit's primary role in our life? To point us back to Jesus, always and forever. We need our hearts to be reoriented around Jesus. And then again, John 16, 7, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Look at this, this is crazy. Jesus says, he says to his followers, they just spent three years with him, and he's like, it's actually to your advantage that I leave you now. Can you imagine what they were thinking? Their lives had been wrapped up in being physically present with Jesus. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. It was of greater benefit that Jesus' followers have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them than, than that they were actually physically present with Jesus. It's of greater benefit to you that the Holy Spirit is present. And if I go, I will send him to you. And so we can, we can, so Jesus sends us the Spirit from the Father. And if we were to spend time going through all of the New Testament, we would learn that the Holy Spirit is given to us to comfort us. And so when we need comfort, we need to wait. We need to carve out time. We need to, to get alone and be quiet. And we need to wait and tell our Father, Father, you gave me the Spirit to comfort me. I'm not comforted. I need comfort. So he comforts. We learn that the Holy Spirit convicts. Now, it's a lot different than guilt. Uh, the Holy Spirit does not cast shade. He's not throwing guilt and shame on you. He's having a very specific conversation with you in your spirit to pinpoint where your rebel tendencies are expressing themselves against the Father. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He corrects us. The Holy Spirit connects us with the Father. He communicates on our behalf. We read that, that when we pray and we don't even know the words to say, when we are working to have that conversation with the Father, the the Holy Spirit actually communicates on our behalf, saying the words that we are at a loss to say for ourselves. And the Holy Spirit compels us to uh, live for Christ and to follow the Father, and he empowers this kind of life. And so here in Acts 2, as we turn the page in in part 2 of our saga, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, we see the promise of the Father fulfilled. And it says, when the day of Pentecost happened, now Pentecost was a big deal. Uh, Maybe we've made Easter to be something like Pentecost in our own culture. Pentecost would have happened at harvest time, so it was kind of a harvest festival. That's when uh, trunk or treat first started happening, I guess. And, uh, but it's, it's like harvest time, the harvest, the Halloween alternative, harvest holiday, right? Uh, there were no Baptists then, so that's not true. It didn't, it did, that's not how it happened. Um, but there it is, harvest holiday. And so God's people would celebrate not only his faithfulness in the harvest, but they would celebrate his covenant with them, like God's agreement that, hey, you're my people and I'll never leave you. And they would celebrate that God had given them the law. And so it was a celebration of covenant renewal. So how significant is it that on Pentecost, God fulfills his promise and sends the spirit almost as a reminder, like, hey, fam, you're celebrating my commitment to you. Check this out. I'm going to show you evidence of my promise in a way that's going to rock your world and you will, you will never be the same. So that happens on Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we spoke about tongues in our series through 1 Corinthians. Do you remember that? Do you remember those fun talks? And so tongues in the Bible can be expressed in two different ways. Tongues can be talking about how people are all speaking in known languages 
and they known languages, they only know their own and they don't know the others. But when they speak in English, the Japanese speaking Christians are able to hear in English, but hear it, but understand it in Japanese, right? Know each other's languages without any prior study. That would be one expression of tongues. And then as we saw in 1 Corinthians, mostly what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians is this ecstatic utterance of an unknown language that is just between one person and God, it's, it's like a, a prayer language. So it's, it's, it's this special gift between the father and one of his kids. So kind of two distinct expressions. So here we're seeing the known language expression between people. That's what's going on here. Now, pretty crazy event here, right? The, the, the imagery, the, the fire, and the, the language and all of this was happening as an expression of the Spirit's presence. Now look at verse 11. Uh, Luke's kind of summarizing. He's saying there's lots of people present from all around the world. Jews, proselytes. He's listed lots of other nationalities and ethnicities and races. He says Cretans and Arabians. And every one of them hear them telling in our own tongues. What? What's the focus? Not the tongues themselves, but here's the focus. The mighty works of God. Now, there are different manifestations of the Spirit's presence. Unfortunately, some traditions would say you're not really a Christian unless you've experienced exactly this, that the Spirit has descended, you had a flaming tongue uh, or a flame above your head, and you spoke in tongues. Like that's the only and first evidence of the Spirit being present. And if you've not had a moment like that, you're not a Christian, you need to seek that moment. But that's not what the Bible says. This is the first and maybe um, biggest, most visible, audible demonstration of the Holy Spirit being present. But since that time, um, has, that, has that type of event happened again? Well, absolutely. There are, are certainly instances where people have been in foreign countries or around people that don't share the same language, and God, through the Spirit, has given this gift. Is it normative for us today? Well, let me just ask, ask you this. Have any of you experienced this? So either none of us are Christians, or that's not the only way that the Holy Spirit demonstrates his presence with us. Different manifestations, right? Other evidences. The Spirit works how the Spirit wants to work. But what's the point? The point is, he works for the same purpose. Whether it was then or now, the Holy Spirit is present with you and empowering you. Why? To display the mighty works of God. It's not about you. It's not about the experience. The whole point of the Spirit's empowering presence is to put on display the mighty works of God. Now, notice in this crowd, some people were amazed and some people were mocking, like just making fun of them. That's what we see in verses 12 and 13. It says, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this, what is going on right now? What does this mean? But others mocking said, they're drunk. It's early in the day and they've already, they've already had all the wine. They're, this is not a Holy Spirit thing. This is, they're just drunk. And guys, this story is so helpful to, for us to understand that as followers of Jesus, if you're going to seek to order your life around the work of the Spirit so that you're disciplining yourself to wait for Him and you are seeking His presence and being empowered by Him, your life will be so radically reoriented from the cultural experience that there will be some in our culture who look at you and look at the culture of our church, however messy, and be amazed at what God is doing through the Spirit, even though they can't understand it that way. They see the evidence of the Spirit. They'll be amazed but there will also be many people in our culture that just look at you reorienting your life around this spirit, somebody that you can't see and they can't see, and they're going to think you're crazy. They're going to think you're absolutely crazy. So that's not new. It's not a culture war thing. That's just the way that it has always been for all of time. Some will be amazed and some will mock. But I want you to see the roots of this promise that the Father gave. It's an old, old promise. Hundreds of years prior to this happening, God had spoken through the prophet Joel, and here's what he said. So remember, we just studied Micah, right? So Joel would have been active um, around the same time as Micah. So you're talking 500 years plus prior to this happening. Here's what Joel said, another prophet. Uh, we see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 to 21. Joel said, in the last days, 
Um, it shall be. Now, remember, we're in the last days. When Jesus came the first time, he inaugurated or began the last days. And the last days will complete when he returns again. So in the last days, that's what we're living in now, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So he'd never done that before. This is new. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So that would be one evidence of the spirit's presence, not necessarily speaking in tongues, but speaking prophetically, and your young men shall see visions. So there's another and different evidence of the spirit being present. Your old men shall dream dreams, another evidence, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, men and women, I will pour out my spirit. So again, that's what it means to be baptized with the spirit. It just means the father has poured out his spirit on you. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Some of those things being fulfilled in the crucifixion, the blood and the fire imagery and the vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. He's not talking about the blood moon crazy talk that we had. Was that a year ago now? Was that a year ago? Sorry, if you want to talk about blood moons later, we can talk about blood moons later. Don't want to get bogged down there. He's, what he's saying is there will be real signs, some of which have already been fulfilled in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and some that are still future. There's going to be real signs before Jesus returns, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is the season to call upon the Lord. What he's saying is when Jesus returns, that season will be done. It will be too late for you if you have persisted in your rebellion. Today is the day to wait and call out for rescue from Jesus. And if you do, he will give it to you. And then Peter turns and addresses the crowd. He's been talking about the prophet, and now he's going to speak directly to the people who are present. And guys, this is really sobering. Here's what he says. God made it obvious to you guys that Jesus was your rescuing king. He made it obvious. But you crucified him and you killed him. Now, he's not talking to the people who actually hammered the nails into Jesus or laid the crown of thorns. But he's saying, by implication, you are responsible for Jesus' death. But God the Father raised Jesus back to life because it wasn't possible for Jesus to remain dead. Listen, he says, and then he kind of shifts gears. You see the text in front of you. He starts talking about David, who was the favorite king of God's people. And he's like, you thought David was great, but where is he? David's dead. I can take you down the street right now. We can pay our little fee to get in the park, and I can walk you right up to David's tomb. We could roll the stone back, and you could look at David's dusty bones. Now check this out. He's like, guys, as a prophet, David wasn't only a king, he was a prophet. And as a prophet, David foretold Jesus' resurrection. He foretold it. And so he says, you revere David, you respect him, yet you reject his word. And this Jesus God raised up, and all of us are witnesses to the fact that Jesus is no longer dead. We can walk to his tomb, and unlike David's tomb, there are no dusty bones where Jesus was laid down. He's alive, and we all saw him present. And now, now, you're witnessing the fulfillment of his promise to pour out his spirit, but you're mocking this evidence of the spirit just like you mocked Jesus as fake king. You killed Jesus. Guys, any one of us could be the recipient of those words before Jesus totally reordered our hearts on him. We all, to a person, responsible for the death that Jesus died. It was my rebel sin that put Jesus on the cross. We are just as culpable. I am just as responsible for mocking Jesus as they were. I am just as responsible for mocking the evidences of the Spirit just as they were. Luke could be talking to any one of us right now. Now notice their response in verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You ever been cut to the heart before? Like can you remember the most, can you remember the weightiest piece of information you've ever received and the way that it just absolutely, rocked your heart so much that you were physically affected by the way that you felt? That's what it means to be cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, man, what, you're right, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do, notice this, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your kids and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So three things there. First of all, for every rebel in the room, you've got to repent and believe the good news about Jesus. There is no other pathway to reconciliation with the Father. You've got to repent and believe the gospel. We have a lifetime track record of rejecting Jesus, mocking Jesus, and mocking the work of his spirit. We are culpable, and he calls us here to repent and believe the gospel, number one. Number two is when you do repent, when you acknowledge your rebellion, when you wait and call out for rescue, he says the Father gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's when. So what does that tell us, guys? There's not some special thing that you have to do as a follower of Jesus to get the Spirit. Every member of our family, every follower of Jesus is baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit is poured out on them. The moment you confess your rebellion and call out to God for rescue, he adopts you into the family. And the sign of your adoption is the presence and the empowerment of the Spirit. It's not for super Christians or better Christians or if you can make yourself speak in tongues or do something epic. No, the Spirit is a gift. And what does it mean to be a gift, especially in gospel language? Unearned, undeserved, unworked for. This is just the Father's kindness giving you the presence of the Spirit, okay? So that's number two. Now, number three, check this out. He says, the promise is for those who are what? Well, a bunch of people, right? For you, your kids. But who else? Those of you who are far off. Guys, that's really good news because some of you in this room this morning are really far off and you know it. You're here for some reason. Maybe you've been acting like you're a Christian your entire life. And I don't mean maliciously. It's what you grew up in. It's what's expected of you. You don't want to disappoint your family. You don't want to let people down. Some piece of you authentically wants to be a Christian perhaps, but you just, you know in your soul it's cold and you're far off. Guys, this beautiful promise that the Father gives you, the Holy Spirit, is not for Christians who can make themselves feel a certain kind of way. It's not dependent upon you being able to be the person who raises your hand on a Sunday morning when the song's being sung. It's not for the loud, vibrant, happy Christian. This promise is for you in your far-offness, and that is really good news. There's nothing that you can do to earn this gift and nothing that the Father requires. When you repent and believe the gospel, he gives you the gift of the Spirit's presence and the Spirit's empowerment. Now in verse 41, Luke says, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about how many? 3,000 souls. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people, 3,000 souls. Now, here's our temptation, and we do this all through Acts. We're like, man, that's incredible. How did that happen? We should look at Peter's sermon, and we should learn to preach sermons like Peter preaches, because surely if we can be a good Christian like Peter and say these this crazy, compelling stuff, everybody will repent and believe the gospel. But that's not the point of Acts. Who's center stage in Acts? Not you, not Peter, the Holy Spirit. And think about Peter for a second. He wasn't a hero. He was a fisherman, not a preacher man. He was swinging swords, not slinging words. He was short-tempered. Remember who chopped off the ear in the garden? Who was that? Peter. He's not using logic or reason, right? He, he's pulling a sword out of his belt and trying to kill people. This is Peter. Peter's an average dude. Peter's any one of us. He's any one of us. But when the Holy Spirit was present with Peter and empowering Peter, Peter, Peter as the average dude just like you and me became the instrument through which the Spirit used for God's fame and the good of other people. So the moral of the story is not work and not work like Peter. The moral of the story is wait. If you want to be like Peter, like if you need a sermon like that, if that's what you grew up with in Sunday school, like be like every Bible character you encounter, fine. Be like Peter in that you wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Don't be like Peter in trying to preach a great sermon. Be like Peter in waiting. Wait, work, and then rest. Because, hey, who added the 3,000 people to the church that day? Peter? The Holy Spirit, right? So who's doing all the heavy lifting anyway? 
the Holy Spirit. So if you need a pattern for your life as a follower of Jesus, here's our pattern. Wait. The Spirit is present. The Spirit is empowering you. Okay, go to work. Work, fine. And then just rest because who's responsible for the outcome? You? No. But too many expressions, too many rivers, too many streams of Christianity would tell you exactly that, that you are. And that's a lie. The Holy Spirit is responsible for the outcome. So work, wait, work, and then rest. He handles the results. So guys, a few remarks for us as a family as we begin to wrap it up. Let's just talk about being in Jesus' family. Jesus' family is not filled with heroic people who are self-powered. Too many of us have learned to Christianity that way. This family right here is not filled with heroic people who are self-powered. Jesus' family is full of humble people who are spirit-empowered. This is not a family for heroic people performing epic deeds. This is a family for those who are humble and willing to express their dependence upon the Spirit. Who does the epic deeds? Jesus is the only hero of this family. I know I said that the Holy Spirit takes center stage in Acts, and he does, but he's kind of the unseen center stage in Acts because the Holy Spirit's role is to use his presence and his power to point us to Jesus. So Jesus remains the hero. He's in the heroic place. But listen, guys, what does this mean for you as a Christian in Okinawa when you go to work tomorrow or when you mingle in your neighborhood? You don't have to wow people with your Christianity. There's no pressure on you to wow people with your Christianity. You know what you need to do? You need to wait on the Spirit. That's what you are called to do. One of the greatest things that I regret about youth ministry is this kind of line and these kind of talks. Like, you're going to do big things for God. You know how much pressure that puts on people? You can't do big things for God, guys. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry I used to say that to people all the time. I'm a super average, below average guy. And most of you are like a couple notches or rungs on the ladder higher than me in our averageness. But we're all average, right? We don't do big things for God. We wait on God who does big things through his spirit. So no epic deeds, guys, this week. This is like the anti-sermon, right? <laughs> Man, I'm glad I went to church today. Fantastic. Rona last week. Never mind. Too soon. All right. There was no, never mind. I'll tell you later. No epic deeds, guys. Expressed dependence, period. Expressed dependence, not epic deeds. Witnessing follows waiting. But let me ask you this question, because let's, let's be honest for a minute. What witnessing has the Father called you to here in Okinawa? I mean, you are part of a unit, right? You do live in a neighborhood. There are people that, the God, that, that our Father has strategically placed in your life so that you can be a witness, somebody who tells them about Jesus. What witnessing has the Father called you to? Can I just encourage you? You are powerless in that until you actually wait. What work has he called you to? Work follows waiting. Guys, work, your work is powerless until you wait. Maybe for you, he's called you to the work of reconciling a relationship. Maybe he's called you to the work of persevering in a very difficult and broken marriage. Maybe. Maybe he's called you to do the work of parenting a child that has just been really challenging for your soul. Maybe he's called you to persevere in doing the work and living in a neighborhood where, man, you just need that ETP and you need Alec. You need a different neighborhood. Like, I don't know. Whatever that situation is, what is your work here in Okinawa? You can't do it. Alec, can I just love you enough to tell you, you can't do that work. You're powerless until you wait. We're called to wait. And witnessing and working flows from our waiting. So again, my questions, have I ever waited? Like actually waited on God the Holy Spirit. Have I made waiting my habit? You know why I personally don't make waiting my own habit? Maybe you can relate with some of this. I don't regularly wait because silence is uncomfortable to me. Is it uncomfortable to you? So I don't wait for that reason. I also don't wait because of my view of time. Waiting makes me feel like I'm wasting time. Why would I wait when I can go work? I don't wait because I'm used to instant gratification, right? If there was an app entitled waiting, I wouldn't download it or have it on my phone. Like who, who would do that? We get what we want right now, but that's not how it works with God. I don't wait because everything in me says work. 
But you want the real truth? I don't wait because waiting is an expression of dependence, and I don't like that. Because our culture, even our expressions of Christianity, have taught us to be independent people, or to think that we are, which is a lie, because you're not. So independence and autonomy, the American way. You are neither independent nor autonomous. But that's why we don't wait. Waiting simply is an expression of dependence, and none of us like to think that we are actually dependent people. Guys, spirit-empowered people wait before they work. Let me just leave you with this. This is Psalm 130, verse 5. And I want to invite you, would you be willing to join me for the next 10 weeks as we focus on the Holy Spirit's work in Acts, that we are completely dependent upon his presence and his empowering to become awaiting people where we are not presently awaiting people? And here's what the psalmist said, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. You know why waiting is so good for us? Waiting reorients our hope. My rebel tendency hopes in myself or my work, but I'm actually created to hope in God. And so waiting on the work of the Spirit gives life because it redirects my hope off of myself and onto God. So for those of you who have to have a list, you just need me to tell you, go do something. There it is, Psalm 130, verse 5. Let's do that this week. Maybe cancel some of your appointments. Maybe cancel some of your studies. Maybe change the way that you do things. But let's be serious about learning to wait before we work. Would you be willing to join me in that for the next 10 weeks? I need, I really need to learn and grow in this area a lot. And I would love to have you join me in that journey. I think Grant is going to come now as one of our pastors and pray uh, for us as a family. Just lead us in the acknowledgement that we are not awaiting people and to ask God the Holy Spirit to cultivate in us a heart that is willing and desiring to wait before we go to work.